of the greatest years of my life were those spent in seminary, training for pastoral ministry. I loved every single moment of my training, well, most of it. And you see, one of the things that made seminary such an urgent and electric place to be for me is that my seminary was just not interested in playing games. They didn't have time for intellectual horseplay. There was no time for academic gamesmanship. There was nothing theoretical at all about learning how to handle the Word of God. Even though my seminary never didn't really put it this way necessarily, my seminary had the mission to light the world on fire through the preaching of the Word of God. Their tagline motto was, we train men because lives depend on it. And I loved that. I loved that. To me, that was very urgent and rigorous and boot camp-like. And you see, the whole point of seminary training was to train you for a lifetime of ministry, to handle the Word of God with power and precision and passion, to handle with skill the most lethal instrument of change known to man. That is the purpose of seminary. That is what they train men to do. That is my calling. That is what I am called to do. Whether I do that or not is up to you to decide, but nevertheless, that is what my mission, my seminary trained people to do. What you have to understand is that the whole seminary experience by design is intended to be mildly traumatic. A little dose of PTSD. All of it designed to prepare you for the rigors of full-time ministry. You see, I got little sleep. I read many books. I drank bad coffee for three years, pushing myself to the point of fatigue and exhaustion, all in preparation for a lifetime of ministry. See, the point is, Isaiah also went to seminary. But it was a different kind of seminary experience than the one I had. You see, mine was in Los Angeles. His was in a vision at the throne room of Yahweh. My seminary had world-class professors who taught me the Bible. His seminary was a devastating vision of God himself. My seminary pushed me to the point of fatigue and exhaustion. His seminary almost made him go into a coma and die. You see, the alma mater of the prophet Isaiah was the seminary of trauma when he had a soul-paralyzing encounter with the infinite worth and majesty of God. And you understand, it almost darn near ended him. It was just too much for his fragile heart to take in. Seeing the majesty of God was a blunt force trauma to the soul that almost killed him. And the reason God did that, the reason why God traumatized Isaiah with a vision of himself is because he was recruiting Isaiah for a mission. A hard mission. A brutal mission, an impossible mission, a dangerous mission, maybe even a suicide mission, one that on the surface seemed destined to fail. You see, there would be no converts. There would be no baptisms. There would be no disciples, no positive response to his ministry of any kind. He probably wouldn't even have any friends. There would be only rejection, only hostility, only opposition. And so what Isaiah needed for a mission like that more than anything else was to be clobbered by the majesty and the beauty of God, was to enroll in the seminary of trauma. And that's exactly what God gave him. This morning, I've taken the liberty of enrolling you into the seminary of trauma. Why? Because if we're going to make it through the 21st century, if we're going to have the courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture, we need to see what Isaiah saw. 
We need to experience what Isaiah experienced. We need to be devastated by the majesty of God as he was devastated by the majesty of God. Because you understand the health and strength of a church to persevere down the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation depends not on their creativity and innovation and ability to win a crowd but rather it depends on if the God they worship is the God of Isaiah chapter 6. Tongue-in-cheek, kind of kidding. I should have had you sign a waiver before you came in here this morning. I should have posted signs outside the door before you came in warning you to enter at your own risk to beware of the God. Because what you're about to see from the text will be potentially hazardous to your health. Certainly, it'll be hazardous to any puny, man-centered theology about God. What you're about to encounter from the sacred text is more lethal than radiation, more dangerous than plutonium. Why? Because what you are about to see is the matchless worth and beauty of God, the God who never had a beginning through the pen of Isaiah. You're about to enter the real holy of holies. Where God is there. Theological PTSD is what you need. Theological PTSD is what you're going to get. Class begins in Isaiah 6. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text six glimpses. Let's call it, since I love adjectives, six devastating glimpses. Six glimpses of a God majestic and supreme, designed to prepare us to preach to a world with courage and boldness. That's where we're going. Six glimpses of a God majestic and supreme, designed to prepare us to preach with courage and boldness. Six devastating glimpses, and so the first glimpse of God is this. Number one, the eternality of Yahweh. The eternality of Yahweh. Let's begin where Isaiah begins in verse 1. Look at the text. He says, In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord. Stop there. You know, one of the things that makes Isaiah 6 so intriguing and even overwhelming is that chapter 6 seems chronologically out of place, doesn't it? It seems like Isaiah waits five chapters and then goes back in time when God called him to be a prophet, but that's not at all what Isaiah is doing. No, you see, chapter 6 is very much chronological. You see, Isaiah had already been a prophet for some time, several months, maybe even a year And so what we see here in chapter 6 is not his original installation as a prophet, but his re-installation. These are not his original marching orders as a prophet, but his new marching orders as a prophet for Yahweh. And these new marching orders would include a new and dramatic and disturbing shift in his ministry. And this new shift in his ministry would include, get this, an increasingly defiant congregation in which there would only be resistance and only opposition. And the reason for that, and we'll see this next week, it is because God would harden their hearts and blind their eyes so that they could not believe. Needless to say, this new shift in his ministry was going to be dangerous and it was going to be lonely and it was going to be impossible. Again, on the surface, this seemed like a suicide mission. So the only thing, the only thing that could sustain him for a mission like that, the only thing that could reinforce his heart with bulletproof steel was a soul-paralyzing glimpse of the beauty of God, and that's exactly what God delivers. Look again at verse 1 and notice the contrast. He says, it was in the year of the death of the king Uzziah that I saw the Lord. Again, you need to feel this. You need to feel this. These are heartbreaking words for a godly Jew in the 8th century. You, you understand the, the king of death Uzziah meant 
the death of hope, the death of stability, the death of a legacy, the death of a dynasty. Uzziah wasn't a great king by any stretch of the imagination, but he was about the only good thing happening in a country that was an absolute disaster. And yet he died because all good men die and all men must die. From dust, man was made to dust, he must return. And you see, the death of Uzziah here is one of the reasons why, from here on out, Isaiah's ministry is going to be brutal and is going to be painful. Why? Because after Uzziah was King Ahaz, without question, the worst king in the history of the nation, politically savvy but spiritually stupid, everything Ahaz would do would very literally bring the country to almost complete extinction. Meanwhile, get this. The monster of Assyria stirs in the east, moving their way closer and closer to the land of Judah. And it was just a matter of time before they reached the gates. And so you understand that Isaiah chapter 6 is a chapter with the crushing weight of a crisis on its back. Many crises. And yet it is a chapter able to hold and bear the weight but again, notice, notice the jarring contrast that Isaiah makes in the text. It is subtle, but it is real. In the year of the king's death, I saw the Lord. You feel the collision? Uzziah is dead, but the Lord lives on. The king is dead. He is over. He is finished. He is lifeless in his tomb. But the Lord lives on. Uzziah's throne sits empty and unoccupied. But the Lord still sits upon his throne. Unchanged by the ever-shifting affairs of the sons of men. And there he sits on his throne. Never aging. Never changing. Never beginning. He is the self-existent source of his own infinite being. He was the living God infinite centuries before he created anything. He was the living God when ancient Egypt laid the first brick for the pyramids. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when the first shot of the Civil War was fired. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Altizer pronounced God dead and Time magazine had the audacity to put it on the cover. He was the living God when terrorists flew 747s into the World Trade Center towers, killing thousands, and he will be the living God 10 trillion ages from now when all the puny pot shots against his reality will have vanished into oblivion like smoke in the wind. You understand, there is not one single king or president who will still be here in 50 years. The turnover rate in world leadership is 100%. In a brief 110 year, years, all there will be 10 billion brand new people on the planet, and all 7 billion of us alive today will have vanished off the earth, just like Uzziah, but not God. He never had a beginning. And therefore, he depends upon nothing for his existence. He will always be and always has been sovereignly and indestructibly alive. And Isaiah saw him. The question is, do you see God? Do you see God? Not physically with your eyes, of course. But do you see the logical implications of the fact that the God in whom you believe never had a beginning? Civilizations come and go. Nations rise and fall. Kings and tyrants have their little day on the stage of human history. The people in your life who scare you and anger you and intimidate you, they are but a mist and a vapor. But the Lord remains forever. Glimpse number two. Number two, the sovereignty of Yahweh. The sovereignty of Yahweh. Look again at what Isaiah says. Again, it was in the year of the death of the king Uzziah that I saw 
the Lord, here it is, sitting on a throne which was lofty and exalted. No, no, the text does not use the word sovereignty, but it screams sovereignty. Two reasons for that. Number one, the one Isaiah sees here in the vision is the Lord. And the thing about that name, Lord, that is not the sacred covenant name, Yahweh. Rather, that is the Hebrew, in Hebrew, that's the title, Adonai. Adonai, and that, that has the idea of one who rules, one who has authority, one who is sovereign. And Isaiah uses that title for Yahweh, no doubt, because number two, where he sees God and what he sees God doing is sitting on a throne. And if you sit on the throne, you're the one in charge. You're the one in control, you call the shots, you pull the strings, and that's exactly what Yahweh does. And isn't it interesting to you that no vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field, or mowing a lawn, or shoveling snow, which is what we do in the Northwest, or shining shoes, or filling out a report, or loading a truck? Those are all noble things to do, of course, but... The point is, in every single vision, God sits, and he sits on a throne. See, God is not frantic, panicked, pacing back and forth, biting his nails. He's never frantically sketching out new blueprints, trying to come up with plan B. No, he sits, and he rules on a throne. And although Adonai appears sedentary on the surface, sitting is in fact the most active activity in the universe because what he is doing is ruling and reigning and guiding and governing everything that comes to pass. You understand, don't you? We do not give God permission to rule us. He does it whether we know it or like it or not. God is not some celestial wimp imprisoned by the resistance of man. The precious free will of human beings is a fragile house of cards next to the supreme sovereignty of Yahweh. We don't give him authority over our lives. He has it, whether we know it or care to admit it or not. Never surprised never cut off guard, always on time, always in control. There is nothing that transpires in the universe except what he himself ordained. The hurricanes that leave entire cities in ruin and the gentle breeze that blows the fragile leaves in the parking lot are both under his command. The fall of an avalanche and the fall of an acorn from a tree is equally under his domain. The stock market and every roll of the dice in Las Vegas does not happen by luck or chance. It is by the sovereign decree of the Almighty. He is sovereign over nations and kings and rulers and over flowers that bloom in the desert that no one will ever see except God. You understand for God to be sovereign doesn't merely mean, doesn't mean at all that he merely passively allows things to happen and then just tries to make the best of it. Oh no. He controls. He causes. He guides, he governs every single moment of life to the exact outcome that he himself determines. And the grammar is clear. It is the throne that is lofty and exalted. It is the throne that is lofty and exalted. Yahweh is too, but what Isaiah sees, picture it if you can, is a throne sitting at the top of an enormous series of steps. It is massive and staggering, and it simply towers over everything else in the palace. Isaiah must, must look up. He must crane his neck up to see the throne towering in the temple. And the point is, this is a God who has no rivals. This is a God who answers to no one. 
This is a God who will not negotiate with terrorists. This is a God who does what he pleases in heaven and on earth and governs everything that comes to pass. And so just think, just think about the implications of the sovereignty of God for our lives. Don't you see? Don't I see? In light, in view of the comprehensive, meticulous sovereignty of God, fear is irrational. Pride is delusional. Complaining is illogical. And anger is nonsensical. Devastating glimpse number three. The supremacy of Yahweh. A supremacy of Yahweh. Look what Isaiah describes at the end of verse 1. Squinting his eyes, he looks up at the throne, but notice what he also sees. He notices that his robes are filling the palace. I don't know if you could feel this or not, but what Isaiah is allowed to see is both frightening and bizarre, almost like a nightmare. You see, Isaiah is neither eye level with the throne nor is he at the base of the throne looking up. Instead, he is across the palace with his back against the wall. Isaiah is standing at the far edge of terror, and as far as he can see, the royal robes of Yahweh cover every square inch of the temple. Now, the ground is completely covered with his kingly robes, which means there's no room for anyone else to stand, but only to linger terrified at a distance. What is this? What are we seeing here? What is the significance of the royal robes of Yahweh? And you've seen them, haven't you? Brides on their wedding day who have long trains on their gowns. It follows after them. It covers the steps behind them. I mean, you know what that signifies, right? It is merely an aesthetic thing, but it signifies radiance and magnificence and beauty and splendor and majesty. And yet, what would the meaning be if her train filled the entire auditorium? And it filled the aisles. And it covered the seats and the stage, leaving no room for anyone else to stand, nor even enter, nor even to enter into the auditorium. What would it mean? It would very simply mean that she is the most important person in the room. And that is exactly what this means here. And it is the supremacy of God that keeps Isaiah from coming any closer, and he dare not do so. Psalm 93.1 says that Yahweh reigns. He is clothed with splendor. Yahweh has girded himself with might. Psalm 104 declares that Yahweh is clothed with majesty. The point is, this is a God of matchless, unrivaled supremacy. Without a mediator, this is a God from whom you had better keep your distance. His glory is too lethal. His, his holiness is too harmful for sinners in their current condition. They have no right to approach. And if they do, they had better keep their distance. And even then, they must shield their eyes from the splendor that would kill them were they to look upon it with their own eyes. And I know that we are not accustomed to speaking about God in this way. But I'll just tell you, I am concerned. I am concerned that this God, this reigning king of unapproachable majesty, has been a little misrepresented in many gospel presentations. That the God proclaimed and believed on by many people is just a little too chummy a little too soft, a little too tame, a little too domesticated, a little too human. My concern is that people want all of God's mercy, but little of his majesty. They want all of his sympathy, but little of his sovereignty. They want all of his condescension and compassion for sinners, which is all gloriously true. But for many, it comes at the cost of his power and preeminence. This will not do. Therefore, we must fight. We must fight the impulse of our hearts to reshape God into who we would like him to be. 
We must battle the pagan urge within us to shrink the infinite chasm that exists between the Almighty and ourselves. Because you realize this, and I'm sure you see this, but that we live in a profoundly man-centered age, do we not? The God complex of the human soul feels this irresistible compulsion to find meaning and significance in the supremacy of the self. People are persuaded that the secret to mental health and well-being is to be esteemed and lauded and praised as significant. And we are significant. As People created in the image and likeness of God. We are more significant than anything God has made. And yet, the soul is not truly healthy until it learns to savor the supremacy of God. Don't you see the secret to a thriving soul? is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into who God is. Which looks like what? What do you do with this? Well, the answer is what you should do is find the top two, three texts, glorious texts about the character of God in the pages of Scripture, and then take the next three to six months of your life, I'm not even kidding, to meditate on those passages every single day. Because the more glory we see of who God is, the more we are freed from the sin and the sickness that entangles us. And Isaiah 6 is a good place to start. Glimpse number four. Glimpse number four of Yahweh. Number four, the splendor of Yahweh. The splendor of Yahweh. The scene which Isaiah unfolds for us becomes even more unsettling, if not disturbing, Through squinted eyes, Isaiah can see Yahweh up, up on his throne. But he also sees, notice what he sees, verse 2, he notices seraphim standing above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. We see here, don't we, that Yahweh is not alone. There are others with him at his kingly throne. You know, one of the things the kings in the ancient Near East did to put their splendor on display was that they had an entourage around them. Soldiers, bodyguards, officials, the highest ranking, impressive people in the kingdom standing around the throne. It wasn't only practical to have an entourage, it was for effect. The greater the entourage, the greater the splendor of the king. Yahweh also has an entourage. And they're called the seraphim. The first and only time these appear in the Old Testament, get this, the word seraphim literally means the burning ones, which tells us that they're fiery and dazzling and even blinding in appearance. These creatures are not cute and cuddly. They are dangerous and deadly. These are not chubby babies with wings. They are lethal and life-threatening. And we know that because in verse 4, when they speak, the very foundations of the temple are shaken. Instead, you would do better to view them as a squadron of F-22 Raptor fighter jets cracking the sound barrier before destroying, flying in to destroy an enemy. You understand, these are soldiers. These are armed forces. These are angelic mercenaries. These are agents, instruments of destruction. In fact, their very presence at the throne here could indicate a context of judgment that God's anger is about to break out, and it is. One writer says the seraphim present a sense of danger here as guardians of the holy and agents of destruction. I think he's right. And yet we see that their job, their primary role and function at the throne is to worship, to worship Yahweh and revere him. And look again how Isaiah describes them. He notes that the seraphim were standing, or better, hovering over Yahweh. 
And he said, they each had six wings. With two, they were covering their face. With two, they were covering their feet. With two, they flew. I mean, more alarming than any horror film ever made. Isaiah says that these creatures, these burning ones, have six wings. With two, they cover their face, not out of shame or guilt, but because they are unable to look fully at the glorious majesty of Yahweh. To look fully upon him would destroy them, so they cannot help but shield their eyes. With two more, their wings that cover their feet, an expression of humility and unworthiness. Although untainted by human sin, they cover their feet to keep God from their contamination. They cannot look at God, and they hide their feet from him. They don't feel worthy to leave their feet exposed in his presence. And finally, Isaiah says that with two of the wings, the seraphim fly. They fly and they hover, ready for service, ready for action, ready to be told what to do. They are always in striking position, ready to do the sovereign bidding of the king. And you understand here, the point of the seraphim is not the seraphim. Any splendor they possess is a borrowed splendor. It is a derived splendor. A microscopic glimpse and reflection of the splendor of the God who created them. And you might think, so what? What does this matter at all to my life? What does six-winged angelic beings who are on fire have anything to do with me? And the answer is, they are created beings. You are created beings. And that makes us equal, in a sense. And so that means that we have the same purpose that they do, which is to marvel at the God who created us. You understand, these seraphim, they get worship, don't they? They get the unapproachable majesty of the God who spoke galaxies into existence. They understand that God is not our buddy. He's not our pal. He's not the big guy in the sky or the man upstairs. Rather, he is a God majestic and radiant in his being, better than anyone else the seraphim well understood what A.W. Tozer meant when he said what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The point is we would do well to take a page out of the book of the seraphim. For when we see God as they see God, that is the secret to all holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. Glimpse number five. Glimpse number five, the holiness of Yahweh. The holiness of Yahweh. Well, these seraphim, these burning ones, they have wings and they have mouths. Wings to serve and do the bidding of the king and mouths to proclaim his infinite worth and value. And what they proclaim around the throne is one of the most jaw-dropping declarations about God ever made in the pages of Scripture. Look, if you dare, at the text. Look at verse 3. And this seraphim called out to this seraphim and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. All of the earth is full of his glory. You know, that text is so sacred that in Judaism, when rabbis get to that verse, they don't read the words, they sing the words. And there are some truths about God in the Bible that put us in our rightful place, don't they? There's some truths that make us feel like little ants at the foot of Mount Everest. Truths like a theological wrecking ball rightly demolish any puny, weak, anemic, man-centered thoughts about who God is and the holiness of God, you understand, is one of those truths. Because you notice what the seraphim say to one another back and forth antiphonally to one another is that God is holy, holy, holy. The question is, what is the holiness of God? What does it mean that God is holy? 
And furthermore, why is it repeated three times? And the real question is, have you encountered it? Have you been gripped by it? Do you know what it means that God is holy? Have you been exposed to the radioactive holiness of God? Because once it happens to you, you can never be the same again. Apparently, that's what happened to Isaiah. And I'll have you know that his favorite designation of God in the rest of the book after this chapter is calling God Kadosh Yisrael, the Holy One of Israel. So what is the holiness of God? Well, you need to understand at the outset that holiness does not merely mean sinlessness. It isn't just his morality. It isn't just his ethical purity, although his holiness means those things too. It isn't only those things. Rather, what the holiness of God is lies in the oceanic depths of his character, thousands and thousands of miles beneath the surface of man's feeble comprehension. The holiness of God, kadosh in the Hebrew, literally has the idea, get this now, of that which is distinct, that which is different, that which is set apart, that which is separate. You see, God's holiness is his transcendence. It is his otherness. It is his uncategorizability. It is his uncreated majesty. It is his matchless, unrivaled supremacy. You see, the holiness of God is less a single attribute of God rather than it is a way to describe, a summary way to describe the matchless incomparability to God with everything that is not God. You understand there isn't some chain of command or, or some continuum of beings where God is the highest in a descending order of beings. No, there is God and there's everybody else. There is God and there is no one like him. The very godness of God makes him separate from everything that is not God. He's not holy because he keeps the rules. He's holy because he wrote the rules. His very character defines the rules. And in fact, the best way to define the sovereignty of God that I can think of comes from a book called The Never-Ending Story. It's a kid's book. I read it to my kids a few years ago, and it's this fantasy story that takes place in another universe about a boy named Atreyu, sent on a dangerous quest to save a dying princess. There's a scene in the book, if you could picture it, where Atreyu had to pass these massive gates guarded by these gigantic monsters. Standing on either side of the gates, and Atreyu had to walk between them. And the way these beings, these monsters are described is a little bit like the holiness of God. Listen carefully. He had been through a great deal in the course of the quest. He had seen beautiful things. He had seen horrible things. But up until now, he did not know that one and the same creature can be both. That beauty can be terrifying. That terror can be beautiful. These two monsters were bathed in moonlight. And as a tray you approach them, they seemed to grow beyond measure. Their heads seemed to touch the moon. It was as though these beings did not merely exist in the way that marble exists, for instance, but for that very reason, they seemed more real than anything made of stone. Fear gripped Atreyu. Fear not so much of the danger that threatened him as it was encountering something above and beyond himself. No, what made his steps heavier and heavier as he approached closer until he felt he were made of cold, gray lead was fear of the unfathomable, of something intolerably vast. That's the holiness of God. Beautiful and terrible. Unfathomable and intolerably vast. That's the holiness of God. 
you know, old theologians back in the day. They used to describe God's holiness and majesty as dreadful and terrible. You ever read those guys? You got to go back about 150 years to find anyone willing to speak about God in that way. They used words like the awful majesty of God and the dreadful holiness of the Almighty. And what they meant was not that God is not loving, gentle, or kind, because he is. But they understood that the right and appropriate response of worship to the holiness of God was a sense of terror and dread and even trepidation. And you notice out of the mouths of the seraphim is the threefold repetition of the holiness of God. He is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. He is holy, holy, holy. What is that? Why three times? You know what that is? That's Hebrew mathematics. That's holiness raised to the third power. That's a Hebrew way to describe the exponential holiness of the living God that should explode the calculator of our minds. You see, we're never going to figure him out. We're never going to reach the bottom of who he is. We're never going to become equal with him. We're never going to reach the top of the ladder of who he is. You can see, you can pose the question of who God is, but the answer takes all eternity. That is the holiness of God. What do we do with this? What are the logical implications of the fact that God is holy? And there are tons and tons of applications, implications of the holiness of God. Here are a few. Number one, the holiness of God, rightly considered and deeply encountered, frees us from loving anything too deeply that is not God. Number two, The holiness of God, rightly considered and deeply encountered, prevents us from tolerating, get this now, even for one second, any thought about God that does not originate from his own word. Number three, the holiness of God, rightly considered and deeply encountered, is the greatest power against sin in the secret moments of our lives. Why? Because God is there. And this God is there. Number four. The holiness of God, rightly considered and deeply encountered, is one of the first things poor sinners need if they are ever going to be saved by Jesus Christ. Which means in your encounters, gospel conversations with unbelievers, you must preach the holiness of of God. It is non-negotiable. Which brings us to the final glimpse of Yahweh. The final glimpse of Yahweh, number six, the glory of Yahweh. The glory of Yahweh. (coughs) There are more lyrics to the song of the seraphim. We cut them off halfway through their sentence. Let's let them have their say. They say that Yahweh is holy, holy, Holy is Yahweh of hosts. All of the earth is full of his glory. Glory. There's the operative word. Glory is the issue. And we talk about the glory of God all the time, don't we? And we should and we must do that. Because it is, in fact, the meaning of life itself. Everything that God does, he does for the display of his own glory. So if we want to understand God and ourselves and the world, we must get to the bottom of the glory of God. And the glory of God, that word in the Hebrew is kavod. Kavod, and that word literally has the idea of that which is heavy. That which is weighty. That which is bulky. That which is hard to pick up. And when you apply that word to a person. You're talking about a person of weight and gravity. You're talking about someone who is impressive and significant, aren't you? And when you apply that word to God, you're talking about someone who is infinitely significant, aren't you? You understand that phrase, the glory of God in the Bible is a summary way to describe the infinite worth and beauty of God because of the innumerable perfections that make him who he is. It is a way of summarizing the infinite worth and value of God in one phrase. But the question is, what do the seraphim mean? What do they mean? 
In other words, what is the connection between the holiness of God and the glory of God, and how is creation the bridge between the two? The answer is this. Listen carefully. What the seraphim are saying is that all of creation reveals the glory of a God who is holy. In other words, the glory of God displayed in what is made displays the beauty and worth of a God who is unmade. Does that make sense? Creation is the tangible beauty of a God who transcends his creation. And so as the seraphim look out into the world and see the universe, see creation, they see what God has made. They see the power and beauty of a God who is matchless and incomparable. They see a God who is unfathomable and intolerably vast. The question is, what do you see when you look at the world? Do you see the glory of a God who transcends his creation? When you look at what God has made, do you see the worth and beauty of a God who is unmade? Because I'll just say right now that we have almost been permanently ruined by secular science, haven't we? What I mean is in our modernist, naturalistic tendencies to explain all things by mechanical processes, we have missed the glory of God. We have missed the providence of God. We have missed the supernatural. We miss the glory of the God who created all things and rules all things. You see, verse 3 does many things for me. One of the things verse 3 does is reminds me of just how evil evolution really is. The seraphim declare the worth of God displayed in creation, right? They cite creation as evidence. It is evidence of the matchless supremacy of God. And evolution is designed to suck the glory of God out of all of it. This will not do. Because all of creation reveals the glory of a God who is holy. And then we're almost done. <laughs> as, if, as if it were possible, the scene becomes even more unsettling. Isaiah has been this terrified spectator in the corner this whole time, and all of a sudden he becomes painfully aware of his own surroundings. Look at verse 4. The pillars of the thresholds trembled from the voice of the one who called, and the house was filled with smoke. What always strikes me about that is that it is not the voice of Yahweh causing the earthquake. It is the voice of the seraphim. As these majestic beings call out to one another, the tectonic plates of heaven are shaken. The entire palace is being rocked to its very foundation. The walls and beams of this palace are, are rocked. They're They're trembling because of the voice of the seraphim who just shattered the sound barrier declaring the glory of God. And if this is the voice of a created being, what is the voice of him who sits on the throne? As we close here, I want you to imagine again the chaos of the scene. Let's put it together. Yahweh's throne looming in the palace. Kingly robes covering the ground. Angel voices like cannons when they speak. The walls are cracking. The ground is shaking. And to top it all off, Isaiah says at the end of verse 4 that smoke was filling the palace, which can't be a good thing. And it's not a good thing because where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there's smoke in the temple, there is the fire of God's judgment. And next week, God will say what it is that has him angry and what that judgment is. But for now, we close with the question. Why is this happening to Isaiah? And why is this happening at this particular stage of his ministry? That's the important question. 
And the answer is because, because he's really, really going to need it. That's why. You understand, when he wakes up from this vision and he goes out there to preach tomorrow, he is going to preach to a people who don't want him to speak. He's going to preach to a people who aren't going to listen to him. No one's going to believe. No one is going to repent. No one will yield in faith to the king. He's going out there to preach to a people who will will be under the divine curse and blindness of God so that they can't believe. So the only thing that can sustain him for a mission like that is to enroll in the seminary of trauma, to get a glimpse of who God is. And the point is, if we are going to walk down this same path, and we are all called to walk this same path in some form or another, if we are going to be, as Christ said, sheep in the midst of wolves, if we are going to preach to a world with courage and boldness, then we, like Isaiah, we must get our degree from the seminary of trauma, that we have to be more staggered by God than we are scared of the man who opposes God. That if we're going to be a church and a people who reach God's elect through the proclamation of the gospel, then we must believe that the God that we worship is, in fact, the God of Isaiah chapter 6. Part 2 of the vision comes next week. Class is dismissed. Let's pray. Yahweh, we feel our humanness at this moment. That's good for us. We are keenly aware of our createdness, that we are created beings, and that's good for us. We feel deeply now, in light of what we've just seen, O Lord, that we are temporal, and that's good for us. And I pray that we would do more than that. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would define us, that who you are would be so gripping and real to us that it would change the way we view the world, change the way we view our lives, change the way we view the people in our lives, change the way we view the events of human history, change the way we view our country, change the way we view what's happening in our country, change the way we view what's happening in the world, change the way we view terrorists and everything else, and that we would see you on your throne reigning over all things. Help us to be a God-enthralled people. We look forward to how how you will use this in our lives, always and only for the glory of your Son. And it's in his name we pray.